While they are headed back to their seats, if you can open your Bibles with me to John 14 this morning. It's where we're going to be studying together. John 14, verses 1 through 6, but we'll, we'll look a little at the end of chapter 13 as well. One other uh, reminder as we head into Holy Week uh, that I forgot to pass along to Marcel is uh, the kind of ecumenical group of churches in Underhill, Jericho, Richmond, uh, partway into Essex. Uh, We're not doing our usual Good Friday walk and prayer breakfast this year uh, because of continued concerns with COVID-19, but they have put together, we have put together sort of a stations, not exactly stations of the cross, but stations through Holy Week uh, taken out of Mark's gospel. And so each church has sort of taken a particular part of the gospel uh, and will be setting up stations. And the idea is that you could go from station to station throughout the week. You could do it, you know, different times of the week. You could go all in one day if you want. Um, but they'll be set out. Ours will be on the front steps. And we have the, the triumphal entry, the Palm Sunday station. Um, so each, with each station, there's a, a passage of scripture to read, to meditate on, a short prayer. Uh, and there's also a video devotion from the, the pastor at each of those congregations um, to load onto your phone or, or however you want to watch it while you're there. Um, so that's uh, available throughout the week. Again, ours coming this afternoon will be out on the front steps uh, throughout, throughout the week. Um, but, but that's a way that we can sort of journey with, um, with the Gospels toward Good Friday and Easter Sunday. This, this week of uh, Passion Week or Holy Week, I always find uh, somewhat difficult, somewhat lonely to enter into. Um, there's, there's the joy, there's the, the excitement and the anticipation of Easter coming. Um, but this last week of Lent is a difficult one. The things we are called to, to meditate on and, and to follow Jesus in are not easy. They can often feel lonely. It's that, that reality of, of human loneliness that I think um, the Lord also has an opportunity to work in in us during this week. Right before the pandemic in 2019, uh, a survey, a, a, a sort of public health survey, uh, suggested that about 60% of American adults say they regularly experience loneliness. And you could imagine how that has changed in the past year. Again, that was, uh, that was before the pandemic and isolation and the separation we've all experienced. What do we do with that loneliness? Some of you may be old enough to remember in 1966 uh, a Beatles single that went to number one for several weeks in a row. But it was unusual for the Beatles because most of their earlier hits, their successes had been sort of pop, you know, catchy love songs, rock songs. Uh, but this song was entitled Eleanor Rigby. And if you know, know the song, you can probably hear the string section in your head. And it it follows a few different individuals, right, who are, are wrestling with their own loneliness, right? Who are they for, right? All the lonely people, where do they come from? Where do they all belong? 
whether you live alone or whether you're surrounded by people day in and day out. Loneliness is something I think we all experience from time to time. And some of it comes, I think, simply from those places deep in who we are, parts of our identity that we, we sort of hold quietly. We hold in reserve, and we're not sure if we can share them or who we can share them with. We wonder to whom we belong. And we can, we can fear that, that sense of, of isolation and loneliness. We see, I think, some of those, those same struggles as we open into this week of, of Jesus' passion and as we look at the Gospel's account of what that week was like for Jesus' disciples. And in John 14, we see Jesus has gathered the disciples into an upper room of a house in Jerusalem. And they're there in community, in the, the friendships that they've shared for the past three years, to celebrate the start of Passover. And that evening, Jesus begins to enter into that celebration and that meal together with them. But as the night continues, Jesus breaks news to them that he is leaving them behind. And he says that there's somewhere he needs to go ahead of them and that he'd be going there alone. Of course, the, the place Jesus is referring to is the road to the cross. And Jesus, in, in John 13, explains that, that he must lay down his life for his friends. But his friends struggle with why Jesus would choose that. They don't understand what Jesus is talking about, and they don't understand why Jesus would choose to do that alone. And we see them raising objections to Jesus in, in that upper room meal. We see Peter first asking Jesus where he's going, struggling to understand what Jesus means. And then he follows with the question, why can't I go with you? Why can't I follow you, Jesus, where you're headed? And what I hear in Peter's question there is the fear of being left behind, the fear of being left alone. Right, after all Peter has, has left behind in his own life to be with Jesus, to follow him to this moment. Jesus, will you leave me alone? Is that what this is coming to? Maybe that's a, a fear that we experience in our own walk with Jesus, in our own prayer life. There are times where we feel like we're right next to Jesus. We're walking closely. We're excited. We're anticipating where we're going with him. And there are other times in our life where Jesus feels far away, distant. We wonder if God has left us alone. But Jesus, seeing the trouble in his disciples' faces, hearing the, the loneliness in Peter's question. He offers us a twofold command to begin chapter 14. And I want to think about that command, and then I want to unpack sort of how Jesus asks us to take hold of those commands this morning. 
In light of the disciples' questions, in light of their fear of being alone, Jesus says in verse 1, Do not let your hearts be troubled. But believe, as you believe in God, believe also in me. The word troubled here in, in Greek means to be stirred up. It's the idea of, of turbulence. You could imagine your spirit being like a pond or a lake that's, that's placid and calm and at rest. And then with, with the wind blowing like a, a day like today or, or the rain coming, that that water becomes troubled, right? stirred up. And Jesus' command here is not to give our hearts over, not to allow our hearts to be tossed on the waves of fear or anxiety, or self-doubt, or loneliness. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And in order to to combat the the waves, the, the turbulence that can come into our hearts, he offers a positive command in its place. He says, believe in me in the same way you believe in God the Father. Jesus asks us to grow in faith in place of fear. We need to to trust in, we need to to actively choose something to anchor ourselves in when we feel stirred up or troubled. And that's especially necessary for the disciples here because they are facing this, this time of trial and testing, this time of separation from Jesus time where they will be tempted to despair and to be overwhelmed and troubled. And so when we experience those times of of feeling distant from God's presence, when we feel isolated or lonely, what is it Jesus wants us to anchor ourselves in? What is it we can trust in or believe? And in the remainder of our time this morning, I want to look at two promises that Jesus invites us to believe more deeply about him. Let me open to John 14. Let me pray for us as we listen to these words of Jesus. Lord, may your words be life and light to us. Lord, may you be like the good shepherd to lead us into life and into places of rest and pasture today. Lord, would you cause to well up within us a hunger and thirst for you in this day. And as we come to your word, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of our hearts Be pleasing in your sight by believing in your truth, in your faithfulness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So there in the upper room, this is what Jesus says at the start of John 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back 
and take you to be with me so that you may also be where I am. I think this is the, the first of the promises Jesus would have us believe and lay hold of more deeply in this week. Jesus wants us to believe that he goes ahead of us. He leaves us. He enters into death before us. Because it's for our good, Jesus says. And specifically because he does so in order to prepare a place that he will later bring us to be with him. Right? Believe that Jesus is going to prepare a place for you even when you feel alone or distant from him. Jesus says he's going specifically to prepare a place for us in his father's house so that he might take us to go there with him later. And while we might not immediately hear the echoes in chapter 14, this, this whole chapter is loaded with the, the language of marriage and weddings in ancient Israel. Couples today, if you were preparing for a wedding, are increasingly confronted with a decision as to where to direct the, the savings they have available to them. If you're preparing for married life, do you spend what you have on an elaborate wedding and invite your, your family and friends and community to, to celebrate with you on that day? Or do you scale things back so that you can make a down payment on a home for the future of your, your family that you're beginning in? There's a, a new show on Netflix, which I haven't seen, but it's, uh, it's entitled Marriage or Mortgage. And it, it's one of these reality shows that pits a wedding planner against a real estate agent. And they compete to get young couples to, to choose to invest their savings with them, right? To either pick uh, this beautiful wedding day or uh, a financially, you know, more, more financially feasible mortgage for their future. But weddings and real estate transactions didn't work in the same way in Jesus's day. In first century Israel, when you reached marrying age, you didn't typically go to the bank to sign mortgage papers. You didn't go out even and look for a, a landlord to rent a room from. Because back then it was still cool to move in with your parents. <laughs> but before you, you moved in with the groom's family, a few critical things had to happen in preparation for that day. And the, the first, and maybe one of the most significant, was to enter into a betrothal covenant or ceremony. Similar to uh, engagement in our, our modern situation, but there are some important differences or distinctives. One of my old seminary professors, Daryl Johnson, who's an incredible preacher, talks about what was involved in a first century betrothal ceremony. And he says that the betrothal worked like this. The, the groom-to-be would travel from his village, from his home, and he would go to where the bride lived. And he would go to her home and he would speak with the bride's father. And together they would negotiate a, a bride price, a betrothal price, that the groom would, would pay the father. 
And then the, the terms were sort of set for this wedding day that was upcoming. And, and as part of that agreement, once the, the groom-to-be and the father reached this agreement, the, the bride-to-be would be called you know, out to where the groom was. And together, the, the bride and the groom would drink a cup of wine. And as they, they drank this cup together, symbolically, the groom-to-be would speak a blessing over that cup. And Daryl Johnson, my, my former professor, says that the blessing that was spoken over that cup of wine is remarkably similar to the words of Jesus in verses 2 and 3 here. The groom would say this, I go now to prepare a place for you in my father's house. And when things are ready, I will come, to, come take you to be with me where I am. This was the promise the groom made to his bride. And in doing so, then, the the groom would willingly leave his bride behind for a time. A time of preparation. And the groom then would go to his father's house, and he would begin the preparation of, of renovation. He would begin adding rooms onto his father's house. So that when when the wedding day came, he would have a place to bring his bride to. Next to the father, with the father, in the father's home. And as the the groom began preparing and, and renovating his father's house, the bride had her own preparations to make ready. She began to prepare for the wedding day, the wedding celebration. That was her responsibility and preparation. And as she prepared, she did so believing and anticipating that one day, in the the not-too-distant future, the groom would come back and take her to be his wife. And and great celebration would follow. In this situation, right, the, the bride and the groom are not asked to choose between a wedding feast or a decent place to live. Right? In, in the faithfulness of their preparations, things are arranged for both. And so by choosing to use this language or this metaphor, what is Jesus saying about his passion? About what he's about to enter into on that last night of his life? I think Jesus is saying by heading to the cross, by laying down his life, by offering what he says will be the new covenant, right? He takes a cup of wine, blesses it, and says, in this new covenant, right, I will provide life for you and remission of your sins, right? In all of these things, Jesus is going ahead to prepare rooms in his father's house. He's making things ready so that he can come and take his children his children, his bride, to be back with him one day. And so Jesus commands us, do not let your hearts be troubled, but know that I am working to create a dwelling place where I can be with you more fully, more permanently, that you would be with me where I am. Jesus says, beginning in verse 4, he gives us a second promise to to calm our hearts in this time of waiting. 
And he says that there's a way that even as we wait, we can anticipate through our lives and through our waiting the plans Jesus has for us. Look with me at verses 4, 5, and 6. Jesus said, you know the way to the place where I am going. Then Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus invites us to believe that he's going to prepare a place for us, that we have a place to go to be with him one day. Secondly, he invites us to believe that, in fact, we already have, we're already given, we already know the way to go there, even if it doesn't seem that that's the case. In verses 5 and 6, we see Thomas expressing his own trouble, his own turbulence. Peter, right, asks the question, why can't we go with you? Peter says, why are you going to leave us alone, Jesus? Thomas here expresses concern that he's going to get lost, that he won't know the way to where Jesus is going. We don't know where you're going, Jesus, so how can we know the way? But sometimes we know the way to go somewhere before we actually know the destination. Sometimes we know the way, but we don't know fully the destination. Let me give you a couple examples. As a kid, I grew up in the Midwest in a, a part of Ohio where two major interstates sort of intersect. I-70 running east-west and I-75 running north and south. And as a kid, I, I remember driving by those, those interstates or on them with great frequency and seeing signs that would, would indicate far away places and cities. Places like St. Louis or, or Denver out to the west or Atlanta or, or Tampa in the south. And as a, as a kid, even though those cities were unknown to me, I'd never been to them, I didn't know much about them, if you asked me as a, an eight-year-old, I could tell you how to get there, right? You drove to the edge of our town, you got on that big road called the interstate, and you just kept driving. And eventually, the road would take you there, right? I, I knew the way. I didn't actually know a whole lot about the destination they led to. Let me give you maybe a, a better and more theologically uh, accurate example from the scriptures. When God chose to deliver his people out of Egypt, right, he took them from a place they knew to a place they did not yet know, right, to a promised land that he said he was preparing for them. And on the one hand, the, the Hebrew people who God led had no idea where they were going. Right? They'd never been there. And they had to travel through this kind of innavigable wasteland of the Sinai Desert. And yet, even though they didn't know where they were going, they did know the way there. Right? The way was with them the entire 40 years, the scriptures say. 
They were followed, they were led by the presence of God in a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. And so sort of two things were true there. God was on the road with them. He was present to them. God was leading them through that exodus era. And yet at the same time, God was also taking them somewhere they had not yet arrived. He was taking them to a land where he wanted to to dwell with them in greater fullness, to to settle down with them forever. We can know the way we are to go, even if we do not know the destination yet. I think it's, it's in trying to find our own way that we can become discouraged, that we can feel lost as Thomas feels here. And so Jesus responds to Thomas, and he says, you know the way, and the way that you are to go, you do not walk alone. Just as the Israelites did not walk through the desert alone. Jesus says to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to the Father except through me. Jesus is is a living way that we arrive at the Father's house. And this is the the sixth of seven I am statements in John's gospel. The the statements about who Jesus is that we're trying to identify with ourselves. And in every case, the I am statements of Jesus are remarkably personal. They confront us with how personal discipleship is intended to be. They're elemental things. They're things we need as human beings. Jesus says he is the bread of life for our hunger. Jesus is the light of the world to cause us to see. Jesus says he is the shepherd of the sheep to guide us. He's the resurrection and the life so that death has no claim over us. And here he says he is the way to that place we long to be with him and with the Father. And because the way is personal, because the I am statements of Jesus are always personal, it's not possible for Jesus to kind of just leave behind a list of instructions. This is how you get to where I'm going. Right? Follow these rules, obey these things, do this, and you'll get there. It's not possible because Jesus is the way to walk in. To get to where he's going means we need to go with him, even in him. We need his spirit's presence to lead us and guide us on that road. And so there there is this, this time of separation, this time where we feel left behind, time where where Jesus enters into dark and difficult things, into death itself. But he goes there because he loves us. He goes there because he wants to lead us through it into resurrection life. And as one theologian has said, that means that while we are still on the way, Jesus is the presence of that which is promised at the end. Let me say that again. While we are still on the way, Jesus is the presence of of that which is promised at the end, right? It's the already and the not yet. 
So as we move into a time of prayer this morning, we invite you to pray that God would grow in us those anchors of belief in these two promises. That we are not alone. Right? That we are, are being drawn to and, and made ready for a great celebration where we will be united with the Lord. And that we are invited to anchor ourselves in Jesus who is the living way, the truth, and the life. Let's, let's pray into those things together this morning. Jesus, I pray that we might be a people centered in you, led by you, on the way with you where you're leading. Lord, I pray that that might open up to us a greater hope, a greater trust. Lord, even a peace that would calm the trouble in our hearts. And Lord, I, I pray into any of those places of troubling in our spirits or bodies or relationships. Lord, would you lead us? Would you meet us? Lord, would the work you have done by laying down your life the work you have done by entering into death so that death might be vanquished, Lord. Lord, help us to trust that fully so that we might release the things that we have too tight a grip on to you. Lord, would you cause our hearts to respond in praise and acclamation Lord, let us respond today with loud hosannas, we pray. Amen.